Hello, everyone. Welcome back to GWK, the podcast. I'm your host, David Dodge. And today on the podcast, we're going to try to answer a question that I get asked a lot and is uh, surprisingly difficult to answer. And that is how many LGBTQ people are there raising kids in the United States today? The simple reason this isn't an easy question to answer is that we're just not being counted that well as queer and trans people in the United States. We don't have great numbers on all sorts of things that impact our community. And that definitely includes how many of us are parents, how many of us are choosing the various pathways to parenthood available to us, like adoption, surrogacy, foster care, and how we are identifying in our sexual orientations and gender identities. And this isn't just about having this number to have it. These statistics are important. They're used by policymakers to create whole policies that can impact and benefit our families and the children we're raising. So fortunately, we're not completely in the dark and uh, we are moving towards getting a better grasp on this question and better data collection. To help break this down, we're speaking with Kara Conran, Research Director at the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law. The Williams Institute really is at the top of the game here when it comes to research focused on sexual orientation and gender identity issues. And this isn't just uh, around parenthood. So Kareth and I will talk about what we know about queer parenthood, what we don't know, what we might know soon, and what we may never know, just given the changing nature of our identities and how we form our families. Anyway, I've been wanting to do this podcast for a while now, mostly just because next time people ask me how many queer parents there are, I can just send them this conversation. As you'll soon hear, it took us the better part of an hour to answer it or to try to, but it's a really interesting question. It gets at a lot of important issues, I think. Uh, I'm sure you'll learn a lot, as I did, so please enjoy. Kara Conron, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here today. So we were talking a little bit before I hit record about just how unusually difficult this question is to ask. It's a very simple question, but it's one that I'm sure we both get asked all the time. And it unfortunately requires a longer response than the, than uh, I would hope. But let's just start there. How many LGBTQ parents are there in the country? I'm going to say that as many as two and a half million LGBT adults are raising about 5 million kids under the age of 18. And with that, I'll say it's an estimate. Um, and it's based on some available data. Um, and David, as you alluded to, there are lots of complications with uh, data sources about LGBTQ people in the United States. Let's start about what we do know, what we do feel confident about, because uh, based on some of your research and the uh, research at the Williams Institute, you were able to at least get some estimates that we feel somewhat decent about. And I think one of those is around the number of same-sex couples that are most of them being married that are also raising kids. So uh, let's talk about your, your research there and what we know about same-sex couples that are raising children in the country. Um, that's a great question. And yes, because the U.S. Census Bureau has been asking questions that identify same-sex couples, both both unmarried and married for, um, for many years. We know that about 16% um, of all same-sex couples um, are raising kids. And we know that among um, married couples, um, it's about one in five married same-sex couples. And if we look even in more detail at female same-sex couples who are married, you're looking at closer to like one in three. So there's variability within the community for sure. And again, you know, we know the most about people living in same-sex couple types just because of uh, data availability. So how would we be able to get a better handle on just how many LGBTQ people, individuals and couples and you know, LGBTQ people that might be in a different sex relationship, so they might be a little bit harder to identify in some of, in some of these surveys? Um, how, how could we? Like, what would your dream be in order to be able to get the best data possible about uh, LGBTQ people raising kids in the country? 
Well, I think our, our dream is close to becoming a reality, and um, and that will entail adding questions about sexual orientation and gender identity, sex assigned at birth, to surveys run by the U.S. Census Bureau, like the American Community Survey. And so that qu questionnaire, if we knew who was LGBT, who was filling out the survey, from there we could look at who has kids in the household, we could look at characteristics of kids, whether they are biological kids or adopted or foster or stepkids, and that would be terrific because we would have more precise information collected in the same way for LGBT and non-LGBT people um, than we have today. So, and this was something that we were hoping to have happen in the last census, but obviously didn't have, I know that this was a big problem under the Trump administration as this was something that folks were pushing for and, you know, had things gone differently politically, uh, we might already have this uh, data, much better data than we, than we did previously. How close do you think we are, is it to actually being a reality for the next one? Well, I think we are, we are going to see information about LGBT people collected by the Census Bureau, and we've already seen some evidence of that um, under the current administration. So on the U.S. Household Pulse Survey, which the Census Bureau has been operating for the last you know, couple years of the pandemic, um, we've been tracking the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the American population. And in that survey, in um, July of last year, questions about sexual orientation and gender identity, sex assigned at birth, were added to the survey, which has given us wonderful new information about LGBT people. Now, unfortunately, in that particular survey, the questions about children in the household are, are imprecise. Um, they, they don't ask about the relationship of the respondent to the child in the household. So some of those kids could be siblings or the roommate, you know, children of roommates or other family members. And so that's why we need to get the what we call SOGI questions on surveys like the American Community Survey. Since the Census Bureau moved from a long form survey to a short form survey, it would still be great to get SOGI questions on the US Census form itself. However, where most people are interested is the American Community Survey, which is a longer survey and is conducted um, with greater frequency and would be a really, really rich source of information about, it is about the population as a whole and would give us um, lots of new information about LGBT people. That survey should be including questions about sexual orientation, gender identity, and so forth. I would say probably within about two years. Questions that's the will be great news. Yeah. yeah, on the American Community Survey. And that's great. And we see the data request, the request to fund measurement, research, and testing in Biden's budget. Um, so definitely progress there, which is great news. Great. That's great to hear. And actually, let's just break down in case people aren't super familiar <laughs> with the difference between the census and the uh, American Community Survey. So the frequency of each and how they do differ. I mean, the, the American Community Survey is done more frequently, but it's also not as comprehensive as the census, right? They're not, we're not talking to literally every householder attempting to. Is that correct? You're right. The American Community Survey is administered more frequently on an annual basis. It is um, distributed to many households. If I'm remembering right, it's at least 60,000, um, if not more, and we can go and look up that fact. And you're right, the, the attempt with the census short form is to get every household to fill it out. But at this point, if you actually go look at the Census Bureau's 2020 uh, decennial census form, it's actually really short. Um, and it tells you a little bit about who lives in the household and their characteristics, um, but not much more than that. And the American Community Survey is now really where the, the action is in terms of understanding 
the demographic characteristics of the population, socioeconomic characteristics, occupation, some housing quality information. And so that is really um, kind of the go-to place now, as opposed to the decennial census. So it's still a, a rich data set. It might not be, you know, the, t- the attempt to get every household like the census is a great thing that we're getting closer to actually having LGBTQ um, identities represented in the survey. Hopefully we'll start to learn a whole lot more about our families and how, you know, how we look across the country. Let me just ask you this question because I'm not even sure if this is <laughs> still true, but I think a lot of people assume uh, based on probably popular representations of LGBTQ parenthood and media that the most common way that we become parents is through surrogacy or through adoption. But uh, my understanding is that it's actually still through different sex relationships first, right? And then either people come out and they start to to live with the same sex partner or they are bisexual or pansexual and have uh, multiple different types of ways that they might be interested in forming a relationship, but their identities can kind of get a little hidden under that. So that was my understanding, at least last time I looked into all this. I don't know if that is still true. What do and don't we know about some of these identities that that might be a little bit harder to capture by the survey? As we said, we know the most about um, LGBTQ people living in uh, same-sex or same-gender households, and about 68% of those couples report having a biological child in the household. About one in five reports having an adopted child, about 17% report having a stepchild in the house, and about 3% report having a foster child. Um, and so what we see is that you know, having kids through traditional means is definitely um, a path to parenthood for people in same-sex couple households. Family Equality did a really good survey gathering data about LGBTQ people and how people have had families and their intentions to, you know, have kids and, you know, kids in the future. And what I can see from this data is that many young LGBT people are considering expanding their families. As many as 40% are considering using assisted reproductive technology and that the proportion of LGBT millennials who are both considering having kids and considering using assisted reproductive technology is much larger um, than we see among older generations. And so it's my answer or comments are sort of complicated in that many LGBTQ people, particularly among younger age cohorts, are female, sex assigned at birth, and many of them um, are self-identifying as bisexual. So when we see the big boost in the percentage of the population that self-identifies as LGBTQ, it's largely being driven by young people, young women, and bisexually identified people. And many bisexual people have different gender partners, and so their ability to create families um, through sex is you know, comparable to that of what we see of, um, of anybody in this sort of an opposite uh, sex or gender relationship. So I think we're going to see sort of a hybrid approach to family formation in the larger community. And some people have an easier time creating families, um, and other people will face significant cost hurdles. And the folks who are going to have the most difficult time, of course, are people who you know, don't have access to both gametes and a uterus. And those include men in same-gender relationships and transgender people who don't have a partner who has the opposite gamete and one uterus available, at least one to sort of, you know, host the growth of a child. And so I think making sure that there are a menu of options for people to provide paths to parenthood is going to be important for this growing and really diverse community. 
yeah, these are uh, issues that our followers will be very familiar with. <laughs> uh, just, yeah, obviously these are limitations when you are a queer man. It's a little bit harder for us to form our families. So it's also true that even though the largest percentage of LGBTQ people that are parents are biologically related to their kids, we don't know, for instance, how many of those are maybe a known donor relationship or like an intentional co-parenting relationships. These are becoming far more common in the LGBTQ community. Again, we don't know a ton about this because we don't have great data. How much do you know? just from your own research, are coming from this kind of like new vanguard of ways that uh, queer people are kind of pushing the envelope in terms of family formation versus maybe bisexual or pansexual people that are having uh, kids in a different sex relationship. David, I think it's a great topic for um, a research project. Agreed. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm also, this is a selfish topic since I am a known donor and that's how I, my path to, to having kids was through this. So I'm like, I would love to know how many more out are out there like me. And, you know, I, I know a ton just personally, but I definitely do not have a good handle on like how many are out there. And this is a problem that the ACS and other surveys are not necessarily capturing this level of granularity uh, is my understanding. Well, um, I think you're, raise, you're raising a really good issue. Um, different surveys are created for different purposes. And so the American Community Survey would, will eventually tell us how many LGBTQ people have kids in their household. It won't tell us how many LGBTQ people are potentially you know, divorced, but um, are parents, maybe are uh, lifetime parents, but are non-custodial parents. And so also invisible will be people who may play a parenting role with a child, um, but are known donors and, and it's are significant people in a child's life, but because they're not on the household roster, wouldn't appear in a, in a survey like the American Community Survey or most others. And so as far as understanding our, you know, our community, how we have children, um, we need to conduct surveys of the LGBTQ population. And this is also just going to get more and more complicated as you know, identities continue to evolve and there's not necessarily anything on these surveys that is counting whether people identify as non-binary or genderqueer as far as I understand. So as the LGBTQ community continues to evolve and, and change and these surveys, like you're, like you're saying, need to keep up with, with how we're uh, identifying, how we form families, which again is uh, you know, very much at the cutting edge of, of both of those issues. If I can add, just add a, a little caveat to what Please. you just said. The big federal surveys will find ways to identify um, non-binary people, whether they oh, identify as non-binary or they have non-binary identities. And that's one of the areas of research that's in progress. So, so that's good news that there's a real effort to make sure that all components of the LGBT community are sort of covered and included. I think one area where we will have a gap for a little while is about knowing more of, about the families and family formation desires of intersex people. Mm, right. And that's because we're still trying to create um, measures that are useful for identifying or effective at identifying intersex people on big surveys. Right. So yep. that's one place where we have a gap. So. If you'd like, we can talk about, like, how would we learn more about what's going on in our community? Yeah, please. Absolutely. Well, I think to really have a perspective of, like, how many people, how do they do things, and counts, which is often what we're trying to describe in big survey research, we probably need a large probability-based survey of LGBTQ-identified people. Typically, we would do you know, address-based sampling, and then we would screen people to identify who's LGBTQ, and then we would give a specific survey that might have questions in it that you wouldn't find in the out in like a general survey space, 
because the way that we ways that we create families are slightly different or more common and and I don't know, it might be interesting to have a comparison of straight cisgender people just to see how many people are interested in alternative pathways to parenthood. Right. Yeah. Um, and how many people are raising children in the context of relationship structures that differ from just a, a two-person relationship. I mean, I, I think you're, it would be fascinating to do that, and I hope I hope someone does, <laughs> maybe at the Williams Institute. You know, over the years since I've become a known donor, and this was, you know, almost nine years ago that I first started this process, I have over the years had many, many, many queer men approach me to to talk about a very similar situation where a lesbian couple or a single woman has approached them to, to consider doing it. So I know just colloquially that, you know, this is becoming more and more common just based on my own experience, the number of people that are, you know, obviously not scientific, but just uh, one example. But uh, increasingly, I'm having people come to me that are not necessarily LGBTQ identified that are interested in, in learning more about non-traditional uh, ways to form families, whether it be through like a known donor arrangement or co-parenting arrangement. I know that polyamory, the quest to become parents is becoming a, a bigger thing in the polyamory community. And these are, are folks that are fighting for parental uh, recognition for more than two people um, attached to a kid. So, and a lot of these people are not necessarily LGBTQ identified. So yeah, no, I mean, I think that this is something that even with like, it's great that we're starting to progress towards research that's going to be capturing all this, but we've got to make sure that we're keeping up with the trends and, and, and understand that these are starting to become interesting options to people that are not necessarily in our community in that way. Absolutely. And I think an area where we need to do more work is, is around insurance coverage for assisted reproductive technology Absolutely. or yeah. um, LGBTQ people and non-LGBTQ people who are experiencing uh, fertility or, or other sorts of issues, um, including just a desire to you know, have kids as single people. Absolutely. So followers of this podcast will know that we, we did a whole episode on a case that's happening in New York right now about trying to get insurance coverage for a gay couple who was denied through the city of New York, a government employee. So this is, you know, it's an interesting area of advocacy that is kind of being pushed forward and, and hopefully will start to change in the near future. Here's hoping. If you're a queer man listening to this and you have your heart set on having a biological child, you likely already know how expensive surrogacy is, costing as much as $200,000 or more. Many queer men understandably experience sticker shock at this number and become a little bit hopeless. But there are ways to make having a baby as a queer man more affordable, and one of those ways is with Mosey Baby, which makes affordable and easy-to-use at-home insemination kits. So this kit would be perfect for anyone interested in an intentional co-parenting situation with a friend or a couple, or maybe you're one of the lucky guys who has an incredible person in their life willing to carry your child for free, meaning you can maybe skip the fertility clinic. Mosey Baby's Baby Making Plus Bundle includes everything gay parents-to-be need to get started on their at-home insemination journey. This includes specially designed insemination syringes, pregnancy tests, ovulation tests, and fertility loop. Mosey Baby has helped thousands of LGBTQ couples and singles form their families in co-parenting or known donor situations, while avoiding a lot of the major expenses that come with other surrogacy options. You can find out more at moseybaby.com and get 10% off your first order with code GWK10. That's code GWK10 at moseybaby.com. To pivot towards some other work that uh, the Williams Institute does that could maybe dovetail with this conversation, um, I know that you've also done research recently on the increasing numbers of people that identify as LGBTQ and where this is potentially very relevant to this conversation about how many queer and trans parents are out there is the willingness of people to self-identify, right? So it, this still takes when researchers reach out and ask people to, to participate in these studies, they need to be openly willing <laughs> to discuss their sexual orientation or their gender identity with 
you know, researchers that they don't know, right? So I assume part of this is people feeling more comfortable with that. Part of it is just trends in identity and, and more having more language to, to identify with what people are experiencing. But can you talk a little bit about what we know about trends in just the ways that younger people are starting to identify and how that might impact the research around parenting? Hmm. Um, these are great questions and I'll, I'll answer as best as I can. What we see over time is a steady increase in the percentage of the population that identifies as LGBT. The questions that have been used most consistently to assess trends generally include a more traditional or conservative group of identity terms like lesbian, gay, bisexual, you know, heterosexual or straight. And so we don't have questions that really help us look over time at identity variability. So it's so I can't answer the question like, you know, does has the percentage of the population that's queer or pan identified changed over time or differed by age cohort because we we don't have those data. Anecdotally, it it feels like it, but I think it's something that we could study empirically. In some work that the Williams Institute has done, and this is some work that Alon Meyer did, if I'm remembering correctly, about 10% of sexual minority people self-identified as queer on the generation study. And so it wasn't as um, large of a percentage um, as we might have um, anticipated. An area where I'm particularly curious about are the people who, when given the choice to describe their sexuality in broader terms, will choose language like mostly heterosexual as their sexual orientation. And that's actually a much bigger group of people. And those folks are also disproportionately women. And so trying to understand who they are and how they identify on you know, more traditional measures of sexual orientation, what their behavior sort of looks like in general, their partnership you know, structures is the subject of one of my studies that's funded by the NIH called SOGSES. Um, and while our focus is on socioeconomic status, we are also collected a lot of information about gender and sexuality in the population to, um, to really help understand this, and also just the, the variety and fluidity of sexuality in the population over time. So hopefully we'll have some results out towards the end of this year in that particular project. Oh, that's, uh, that's amazing, yeah. And I mean, I, I find it's, you know, it's an interesting question for people that do identify in that way, like mostly, uh, heterosexual, or even if they do identify as bisexual or pansexual, for folks whose interest it is to become a parent, where that's a very big driving factor in, in what they want for themselves. You know, I, I've, I've heard this from a lot of bi and pan people who that ends up being something that helps drives the, uh, who they're looking for in a partner because, because as you're saying, it is so much more difficult <laughs> for LGBTQ people to have children, but, and this is one way that it can make it a little bit more easy if you're in a, an opposite sex uh, or a different sex uh, relationship. So it, it does seem like you're saying like some of the official numbers are surprising to people in that it seems like, you know, I don't know, especially if you live in New York, it feels like everyone's gay here. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's, it's, it does seem like it's an undercount just based on what we know. And it seems like that's probably one of the places where we're undercounting folks is folks that don't necessarily, uh, or if they are in an opposite or a different sex relationship, that they're not uh, maybe eager to, or they understand that they have some sort of privilege in how they're presenting, and so maybe aren't eager to kind of self-identify as part of the community. I, I assume that this kind of runs the gamut as to how people end up responding to surveys that are, are complicated and maybe touch on, you know, a lot of different uh, reasons. Does that ring true to you at all? At this point, I'm, I'm not so worried about disclosure issues, um, particularly when we give people the chance to ask and answer questions about sexual orientation privately one-on-one. -on -one. 
I think it's a different matter if you have an interviewer at your kitchen table and your family members are around. I think that definitely impacts disclosure. But most surveys are conducted one-on-one on their own phone and increasingly using online platforms. So where I think there is some room to grow or some questions is really, really about how people identify and what response options we provide on questionnaires that would give us more information about a broader array of people. So there's work that's going to be done right now to try to figure out if there are addition, additional like identity response options that should get, get added to sexual orientation measures. Um, I think you'll see a big increase in the amount of information available, probably that has some more nuanced response options in many data sources in the US. And that's going to be very rich for understanding LGBTQ parenting and a range of other issues. Yeah, no, we welcome that and look forward to learning more about it. So one other area that I, I think, it's, I guess it's not shocking to me or probably many people that know LGBTQ parents, but the differential between the number of LGBTQ people who serve as uh, adoptive or foster care parents uh, versus our cis and straight brothers and sisters. So can you talk a little bit about that, what we know about the frequency of queer people who are foster or adoptive parents versus uh, straight and cis people? Sure. Um, so in terms of our analyses of the American Community Survey data, People in same-sex couples, about one in five, are report raising an, an adopted child compared to about 3% of people in male-female couples. And we're also much more likely to report fostering a child, about 3% compared to less than a half percentage point for people in um, different sex couples. One of the obvious reasons for that is that for a lot of people having a biological child, if it's going to be through surrogacy or other reproductive assistance means, it can be prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. Also, you know, I think there's something to be said about the altruism within the LGBTQ community that might be pushing people to be um, stepping into those spaces. But it does seem like as advocacy pushes to make uh, reproductive means more affordable for uh, for more people that you know we'll, we'll probably start to see more of a trend line of folks choosing that that means and have we seen that in, in the data as you've been following it or has it held pretty steady in terms of the percentage of adoptive and foster parents that's a great question and it's something I feel like I you know I want to go back to my office and investigate I don't <laughs> have an answer for you at no this worries. moment um, but it's a great question I'm I'm very concerned about access to family formation and cost differences because, you know, as you know, our community is very diverse in terms of socioeconomic status and not everyone has the means to access, you know, ART or surrogacy is, you know, very expensive. I'm, I also think we need to think about how well people can live and raise the kids that they already have since rates of poverty are very high, about one in three transgender people pretty high for bisexually identified folks, um, much higher for LGBTQ people of color. And so shouldn't our community also be thinking about what it means to raise a child, particularly about three quarters of LGBTQ people are parenting or female. Some of them, and I think we know the least about single parents, but in some analyses I've done, it, I think I've identified a group of single parents who are LGBTQ and raising kids. They have the highest levels of poverty as you would expect. So we need to really think about the intersections of race, socioeconomic status, privilege, um, and taking care of the kids who are already here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned this because this is a, a fallacy that you hear a lot. I think, and again, this is understandable in some level given pop culture and just the way that LGBTQ people are represented on TV and movies that, you know, you, you tend to see this very white cis 
version of you know a happy gay couple that you know I, I think like the modern family example of the cam and mitch adopting a kid and, and that's that's kind of what people see but they they don't necessarily you don't see the uh, the storylines of the folks um, in our community who are in poverty and we are this is a, a bigger percentage i think than people realize of, of folks that are struggling uh so anything else you want to say about the research that y'all have done in that area would be would be great at this moment, I have another topic in mind, so I apologize. Oh, please, gonna, no, it's I'm okay. Gonna, you know, topic shift, and I feel like I'd be remiss because a couple of my colleagues at Williams, I think, are really good at bringing this issue to light, and it really is sort of the issue of adoption and who makes the decision to place their kids up for adoption or who has children taken away by the state, and remembering that LGBTQ people are contributing to those kids um, who are becoming available for adoption. So thinking about not just kids who are in child welfare because their parents, presumably straight cisgender people, are rejecting them and not allowing them to be in the home or not making home a safe place. We also need to think about LGBTQ people who are losing custody of children who also need support and resources to be good parents. And so while I think many of us, you know, personally are in support of, of adoption um, and non-discrimination protections around adoption so that kids who need homes can be adopted by loving people who can provide good homes. We need to think about our, like the broader community yeah, um, and just make sure we're kind of supporting, supporting each other on all sides. For context for our listeners, we should just mention that the, I think it's up to 11 states now that have passed quote unquote, religious freedom bills that make it legal to discriminate against prospective LGBTQ foster and adoptive parents, but that it's still legal to do so in every state in the country. And there's an agency that will work with you. So reach out to us at dads at gayswithkids.com if you are in one of those states that are interested in finding a, a LGBTQ affirming agency. But we talk a lot about the discrimination faced from folks that are looking to adopt and, and service foster parents. And I think that you're, you're pointing out a really uh, great gap in our coverage, which is talking about folks that need support to not have their kids uh, taken from them. And I know that there is a there was a law passed in 2018. I'm forgetting the name. Uh, I think it's Family First something or another, but I think it's referred to as the Family First Law um, that basically is trying to push states to reorganize their child welfare systems to prioritize preserving family because it, it really is true that like when you you know the, the foster care system is a necessary evil in some ways i think it, i think very few folks that are involved in it would claim it's this you know beacon of of uh you know or a paragon of like how things should run i think everyone knows that there's problems with it um and one of them is that i think there's a recognition that children are taken from families often too quickly and often disproportionately in communities of color and potentially among LGBTQ families as well. I'm not actually sure if that's uh, if that's true. And if you do, uh, if you know if that's the case, that would be great to hear more about that. But this is a long way of, uh, of just getting to the the fact that I think that there's interesting advocacy happening right now to try to get states to to get all parents in the foster care system resources before this. Uh, separation happens because it is such a traumatic thing to happen, obviously, to the families, but to the children in particular, you know, and often placed in communities that are nothing like their own and, and you know, forced to fend for themselves. So I would actually just love to hear more about, so you, you mentioned your upcoming research. Anything else you want to say about your uh, research uh, that's coming up or anything else that you're studying right now at the Williams Institute? Sure. I'm really excited about a project that I'm working on right now looking at a cohort of people in the Ad Health cohort study who are about the age of 40, um, includes sexual and gender minority people and straight cisgender people, and just asking them about their family structures, their how they created kids, their desire for kids, what their barriers were, how they went about it, what the costs 
were. Um, and I think that's going to provide some new information. Um, and again, it's only about one age cohort, but I think it's a great start. And a lot of people who are about the age of 40 are in that you know, active parenting range, you know, zone of life. So I'm really looking forward to getting that, that work out. And after talking with you, I feel like I want to launch a, a new series of projects about LGBTQ parenting. I will we'll be happy to help. Uh, that's great. <laughs> so this does bring to mind, though, so to the extent that we know, uh, I, I stumbled across a statistic at some point. I have no, I can't remember where it was from. So as you've mentioned, the, there are far more female-identified folks raising kids than queer men. Our podcast and our, our platform is for gay, bi, and trans men who are interested in fatherhood. And, you know, so from my perspective, it's, it's everyone's busting down our door trying to figure out how they can make it happen. And I saw a statistic once that said something like, you know, I, I'm going to fully make up this number, so forgive me, but, you know, very high percentage of queer identified men, 80 to 90 percent, professed an interest in fatherhood and wanted it to be something that they potentially explored. Uh, these were, you know, young queer men. But then you look at the realities of how many of us actually do become parents, and it's obviously not that much. So, and this is where, again, there's some obvious reasons for this, just based on how much more difficult it can be for queer men to uh, to have kids, especially you know if they are hoping to have a biological child. So, to the extent that you know anything about just and this you know across the LGBTQ community, the people that are professing an interest in parenthood is this something that uh, you you know much data on, and have you seen have you seen it change much? I guess, and I'll just preface this whole question with this caveat, which is that, you know, we hear time and time again from queer men who come on our podcast or that we talk to in an interview that they say fatherhood was never something they thought was going to be in the cards for them because they might have been raised in an environment where the idea of queer people being parents was just not as accepted or prevalent as it's becoming today. So I think a lot of queer parents across the acronym are now getting to the place where they realize that that's not true. And what Gays with Kids is trying to do is increase visibility for queer people so they can see that it is possible for them. But I've never seen actual like statistics or data that have talked about trends over time of people professing an interest. And to me, that also is correlated with people realizing it's possible, right? Um, David, I really think that you should be an, an advisor. You're serving really as an inspiration for a lot of research. Um, <laughs> That's great to hear. To my knowledge, we don't have surveys that have really tracked trends over time. And I think family equality, to my knowledge, has done one of the best yep. surveys of family formation and tensions and how people have created families and roots to uh, formation. And I just pulled that study up now. And from what I can see quickly, breakdowns by sex assigned at birth are not included in that particular report. There are some nice like age cohort you know, charts. I'm guessing because the, the number of men in the survey was probably lower, and by the time we start slicing and dicing the data. So, and so any funders out there listening, we need some really yeah. big dollars for some big surveys because there's a lot to learn. Yeah, no, absolutely, um, right. But I think we're gonna, I, my prediction or speculation is that we're really gonna see changes with younger age cohorts of young men who can visualize a life that includes a partner, a family, children, because, you know, they're growing up with the Obergefell decision. Um, right, yep. And uh, there are many more models of you know, cisgender, gay, bisexual men who are creating families who are able to live out lives. And so my prediction would be we would see an increase. 
Yeah, I mean, again, if just uh, anecdotally through games with kids, this definitely seems to be seems to be true, and it's great. Just this is why visibility is important. It's why research like uh, what y'all do is important. So I, I think that's definitely hopefully going to be true. One other area that I, we haven't really touched on very specifically that I think we definitely should before we uh, we part here is just the research and uh, or statistics that you understand about the trans parenting experience. How many folks that are trans identified and also parents, um, and you know some of the particular struggles that we understand about their path to parenthood. That's a really good question. So um, in the TransPOP study, which is one of the best um, nationally representative uh, samples of transgender people, 8% of transgender people were reported that they had kids under the age of 18 and, and, and more are lifetime parents. And so what I don't know is um, path to parenthood for trans folks. And I think you know, that is something that I will look up. I'm imagining it's a mixture of, you know, kids who are called biological kids and stepkids, adopted kids, foster kids, and all the rest. Right, but, yeah. You know, the important thing I, for me, you know, the important takeaway is simply that there are a number of trans people who are raising kids and they have experienced high levels of poverty, high levels of discrimination, um, and many folks have kids at home for whom they are responsible. So. Right. Trying to improve the conditions for transgender adults is going to mean improving conditions for the kids in those households. Absolutely. Well, Kareth, as we get more research, we want to hear more from you. We're big fans of what y'all are doing. Again, it's uh, it's important that this type of research is happening. So again, yeah, funders that are listening, please um, look out for stuff coming out of the Williams Institute so we can get all the great data, but, uh, you know, every last aspect of our community that we can. And yeah, we look forward to having you on a future podcast where we can keep talking about this stuff as we as we know more. Absolutely, David. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for, your, for all of your work. Thanks again for being here. Those of you with babies and small kids at home, think about this. A lot of the food you pass in the baby food aisle at the grocery store has been sitting on that shelf for longer than maybe your kid's even been alive. The stuff can be so heavily processed and our kids deserve better. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Little Spoon, which has an awesome menu of baby and toddler kid food that is non-GMO and organic, made with fresh ingredients and absolutely nothing artificial. It's all basically homemade and just delivered straight to your door in a cooler box so you can just pop the meals in the fridge or freezer and heat them up when your little ones are ready to eat. We had a couple of uh, tiny taste testers help us out. (laughs) Um, Eight-month-old Logan absolutely loved Little Spoon's baby food blends, especially the guava, mango, apple, and pear mashup. And he loved the organic smoothies as well with hidden vegetables like the sweet potato and carrot cake smoothie as well as the veggie pack green dream with chai. So uh, with kids' meals under $5 and baby food smoothies and snacks under 3 trying Little Spoon is really affordable. At Gates with Kids listeners can get 50% off their first order with the code GWK50 at checkout, and that's uh, at littlespoon.com. That's code GWK50 at littlespoon.com.